0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne's guest will be, once again, Christopher Soul Eubanks, who will be telling us about his new organization, Apex Advocacy, its overall goal of helping communities of color defend themselves against animal industries through community organizing and activism, and its very first campaign regarding a backyard slaughter operation In Lithonia, Georgia. So I got to interview Christopher last time, and now you're getting to interview him, so I feel like next time it's me again, right? That's how it works? (laughs) I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was great to to get to know him a little bit. He's just a phenomenal activist. I love the stuff that he's doing. And I love that he started this new organization. I think, you know, this really has potential to to make deep inroads. By combining environmental racism and, and animal advocacy, I think he's doing something incredibly powerful. So, yeah, I was really excited about it.
0: So before we get to that interview, w- we wanted to provide a little bit of an update because last week we spoke about this sanctuary, Asha's sanctuary, which isn't too far from us and it's in upstate New York and this like absolute shit show that's going on there and of course your your worst nightmare came true, Marianne and the news changed before our Uh, discussion about it went out. So we wanted to give a little bit of an update into what's going on at Asha Sanctuary regarding the cow controversy. This is bad.
1: Yeah, it is. If you didn't hear last week's episode, yeah, it's a small sanctuary and two cattle. There is no... All right, this is an aside. There is no word other than... There's no singular word for a bovine animal who's an adult, that covers both uh genders. I uh, it's mm. bizarre. But anyway, so two cattle and they were first reported to be calves, but apparently they're pretty well grown who wandered onto the sanctuary grounds and the sanctuary owner, Tracy, uh decided that she wasn't going to give them give give them back just to anybody who came in and said that they owned them. And That's kind of where we left it last week. And we thought it was a really local story. I wasn't even sure we should talk about it, but it was not a local story. It has blown up. It has been covered uh, by Plant-Based News and and by a lot of other, and by USA Today. Really, it's become a national story. Sadly, in the interim, Tracy got arrested and the cattle were seized and and brought back to the guy who lives either down the road from her or next door to her, I'm not sure, who has a you know a beef farm? is that what you call it a beef farm? I don't know. and uh, they were given back to him. He alleged that he put them into a secret location to avoid them being harmed. He's sending them to slaughter
0: like oh my God
1: like the language, like the way people I, I I think he's probably sincere. I don't know like it's so crazy. like animal activists are not gonna harm these animals. you are anyway. She got arrested and she's been charged with pretty serious felonies uh, for, quote unquote, stealing these cows. I don't think she stole them. I think they wandered onto her property. I don't think she has a right not to give them back in my mind. I don't know. Maybe the law allows them, the sheriff or whoever to seize them. That I don't know. But she didn't have to turn them over. That's my opinion. That's my legal yeah. opinion. <laughs> and anyway, the story is unfolding. We'll probably be updating you on it more. I really hope that this calms down a little bit and these charges get dropped because it's unbelievably unfair. The, these these cattle wandered onto her property. It's a sanctuary. Yeah. they were Whether they knew it or not, they were seeking sanctuary. Can't we respect that?
0: What do you think about the media that this has been getting? Like, for example, I know that Joaquin Phoenix had a statement that he published about it. And as you mentioned, it is getting a lot of media like Do you think the media is in favor of her or do you think it's in favor of the beef cattle farmer murderer?
1: You know, it hasn't been terrible. I thought the USA Today piece was kind of bad, but also the coverage of Joaquin Phoenix's statements, which were great. And you're just talking about about the animals. He centered the animals in all of his comments. And, you know, why can't we have some compassion for these animals? And uh, those articles were great. So the media, I don't think the media was terrible. Um, you know, it varied. It definitely varied. But even the local media, I think I mentioned this last uh, last week when we talked about it, when all it had been covered by was very local media. And I would think that would be very, very on, on the side of the quote-unquote farmer but I thought it was pretty neutral, uh, you know, both sides. So it's it, it's a fascinating situation. It really is. It re- Because it really boils it down to the fundamental question of, you know, there's no argument that these animals were being abused. There's just an argument that they were about to be slaughtered, murdered killed. Uh, and that really brings it down to the bottom line. And if you have a sanctuary, you call it a sanctuary, and you have devoted your life to giving animals sanctuary. Like, how dare they suggest that you are required to just say, oh, yeah, well, these ones, uh, you know, these animals wandered onto my property, but but I'm going to participate in the slaughter process by handing them over to these people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It outrages me. No, I totally agree. This is this story is bananas and like you know it's easy to think well will this ultimately do good things for getting people to think differently because of the type of media it's getting but honestly at the, at the end of the day there are individuals whose lives are being impacted in significant ways by this you know not only do we have the sanctuary owner but we have the cattle themselves i don't like that word it's just worth staying on top of this story and seeing what the calls to action continue to be I was also sort of taken by all of the press that has been popping up in my feed left and right about Cracker Barrel and the Impossible Sausage drama. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Uh, Sure. People may have heard about it, and you've clearly heard about it, too. Like, I've never been to a Cracker Barrel. They kind of sound cute, but, you know, like, very meaty and whatever. So they added an Impossible option totally an option. They didn't take anything off of their menu, to their menu. And apparently, (laughs) this is the most bizarre story. Uh, Discover new meat frontiers, they said. Experience the out of this world flavor of impossible sausage. Did not take anything away, but they got the most enormous amount of pushback. People apparently feel that Cracker Barrel is theirs, and I, I don't know what they think. Like, why can't it have choices? All the more reason to stop eating at Cracker Barrel. This is not what Cracker Barrel was to be all about. I just lost respect for a once great Tennessee company. Oh, if I wanted God. a salad, I would oh in fact God. order a salad. Stop with the plant-based meat crap. Like, like they don't—they're not being required to order it. They haven't lost anything. But this really shows like how deep this stuff goes and how it's connected to people. I don't know. Like, I don't really know what it shows because it's so nutty, like connected to people's identity. The fact that their restaurant is going to serve people who they don't agree with uh, about animals that that they uh, here's another one. Oh, no, the Cracker Barrel has gone. woke. It really is the end times. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, this is like I'm like smiling and I'm disgusted and I don't really understand why both of those things are happening to me. But it, it just I guess it's rising anxieties is making me smile like this is what you've got, you guys, like you're not willing to evolve this. These are the people who as soon as we hit that tipping point, which I think either we've already hit or we're about to hit, they're going to be like the first ones online ordering it, I hope Well, maybe that's just my indefatigable positivity.
1: I can't predict anything about like people anymore. I don't understand people. This is just this is just nutty. (laughs) It's just nutty. Like, why can't people order what they want? Mm -hmm. It's so weird. No, everybody has to be like me. Everybody has to agree with me. It's it's just crazy. Yeah, this really is a rising anxiety story, I think. So uh, I'll leave it out of my rising anxieties report at the end of the episode this week. But it it could well fit in there.
0: A lot of things can. I mean, I I think a lot of the stories we want to discuss at the beginning of the show do have a rising anxieties component to them. Maybe everything. Yeah, maybe everything. Last week, I interviewed Dr. Andrew Knight and it was a really popular episode. I just saw it shared significantly more than other episodes. And he was a vegan vet and he was talking about vegan dogs and cats. And I like he's pissing off everyone. Like everyone. <laughs> no, That's really is. I mean, how dare you? Like you have to feed your animals, animals. Like that makes more sense. It's just so anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. We have a lot of things going on here at our hen house. We had a really great Flack Friday meeting last week. I always enjoy it. And we have just so much going on with the flock members and the listeners. So if you're listening to this, join our community. It's just so much fun. I didn't even mean to give that shameless plug, but I did.
1: Yeah, I loved our last Flock Friday. Mm-hmm. It was, it was yeah. great.
0: Right. I Yeah, totally. And I think we should get to our our interview today, Christopher Sol Eubanks, because I know a lot of people are like, get, come on, stop talking. I want to get to Christopher. Okay, so for those of you who are thinking that...
1: Are you telling me that that's what people think when they listen to our podcast? Because that's really depressing. Stop talking.
0: (laughs) I don't know. It's probably a mixed bag. But in any case, Christopher Sol Eubanks is worth stopping talking for. That sentence was not grammatically correct, but you know what I mean. He is a social justice advocate, creative and public speaker raised in Atlantic Georgia, who has dedicated himself to doing advocacy work that combats all forms of injustice. After learning the horrors of animal exploitation, Christopher became vegan and he began doing community organizing and he helped co organize Atlanta's first ever animal rights march. Christopher is the founder of Apex Advocacy, and that is a nonprofit animal rights organization that uses digital content and grassroots activism to help communities of color defend themselves against animal industries and fight for collective liberation. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Animals need you and you need data. Did you know that 41% of people who experience animal advocacy say it influences them to eat fewer animal products or that 42% of people's vegan or vegetarian journeys are motivated by health? At Faunalytics, the mission is to empower animal advocates with research, analysis, strategies and messages that maximize their effectiveness to reduce animal suffering. They conduct essential research, maintain the largest free online research library of studies on animals and advocacy, and directly support animal advocates like you in your work to save animals' lives. Sign up for Faunalytics weekly email alerts to stay in the know about the latest research that can support your animal advocacy. Visit faunalytics.org forward slash sign up. That's F-A-U-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot org forward slash sign up to get signed up today.
1: Welcome to our Hen House,
2: Christopher. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: I'm so excited. And I should say welcome back because you were on not that long ago. And as we were just talking about before we started recording, we really wanted to have you back because you have now formed the organization that you talked about forming in that interview. But I I also highly recommend that people go back to that interview and listen to it because we probably covered a bunch of things there when you spoke with Jasmine that you know we will skip today so we sh- people should listen to both of them but we really want to hear about Apex advocacy so just tell us about it first of all like what is the
2: mission so the mission essentially is to involve more people of color in animal advocacy work and we have a variety of strategies that we have been using to get that to come about and essentially i started it just because i didn't feel there was the space and the attention to these issues that I would have liked to have had to be placed emphasis on in the animal rights movement. So I started this organization, like we spoke about the last time, it's finally here. And I really want to involve people of color in animal advocacy. So that's the primary focus of our organization. So the three biggest initiatives that we have right now are our, our three main initiatives. Our first one is Black Vegan Everything. And we spoke about that the last time I was here. But essentially, that's a hub and a space to highlight Black-owned vegan businesses. So if you want to learn more about Black-owned vegan businesses, you want to shop with them, you know, people that would like to donate or support by Black-owned, you can go to that website and we add to the website as often as we can. We're actually about to add, I would say, about 100 more businesses to the website. Oh, wow. So the goal is to add weekly. And one of the reasons that we want to add in increments is because we really want to go through and research all of the businesses and make sure that they align with our ethical stance. The website isn't only about vegan food or plant-based food. It's about showcasing businesses and companies that are intentionally vegan and carry that throughout the ethics of their company. So we're excited about the next batch of businesses that we'll be showcasing on that. So that's one of our initiatives that was our first initiative. The second initiative that we developed is called No Backyard Slaughter. And this is near and dear to my heart because the way it came about was there's a person operating an illegal slaughterhouse about 10 minutes away from me in their backyard. And The community has been trying to get this slaughterhouse closed down for about four or five years. And the county sent this person a cease and desist order to no longer conduct business because they don't have a permit to operate a slaughterhouse in a residential area. That's not something that's allowed in this county. So we decided to collaborate with the community, get to know the community better, and see what we can do to help push this issue forward. A lot of the people in the community aren't seasoned in activism. And I have significantly more of a larger background and experience than they do. So I am working with them. We're collaborating to create sort of a pressure campaign on the county to force their hand to make them do something about this illegal slaughterhouse. It's like I said, it's been three years and the community has been fighting back against this slaughterhouse.
1: You're in Georgia, right? This is near Atlanta. Is that right?
2: Yes. So this slaughterhouse is right outside of the metro Atlanta area. And finally, we have gotten to the point where after years of the slaughterhouse owner going through court delays and using his lawyer to create all types of style tactics, we are finally to the point where the county is actually bringing him to court for the charges around operating an illegal slaughterhouse in his backyard so we finally had a court date and this is this was the 1st pretrial motion where the county had a court date and the slaughterhouse requested to move the case to another county because of our uh our activism and bringing attention to the situation and uh, and gladly the court denied their appeal so we're finally making some headway it's finally getting to the point where it's in court and We'll hopefully see some action sooner than later.
1: I mean, I've heard of like I am a lawyer, but you know, like that's called a change of venue when there's a place that's pre- like prejudiced against you for some reason. But the fact that they would argue that they're entitled to go to another county because the people in this county hate their slaughterhouse—I mean, of course, like like that—that that, that's a ridiculous argument. And I'm really glad you you won it. Like obviously, the people who are protesting are the people who are offended by it. It, they're not prejudiced against them for some other reason. But I know that it's called Bradford's Livestock, but I really don't know. Can you tell us a little bit more what it's like and why there was so much dislike in the community for, I assume many of these people are meat eaters, uh, unless you're working just with vegans, but why were people offended by it and why did they want to close it down? What are these places? I don't know a lot about backyard slaughter, so, so fill me in.
2: So... One of the things about this case that is that really caught the attention of the neighborhood is that, one, it was very out in the open. It's not like he was hiding what he was doing. So he has about five acres of land and you would just see animals out there. The the place wasn't very well kept. He had this big fencing around the home area and it just didn't look appealing. So he was standing out very easily. He wasn't trying to hide what he was doing. And you could hear animals being killed. He was just uh, pretty much unapologetic about this slaughterhouse. And it was, like I said, in a regular neighborhood. So he has neighbors on the left and to the right of him. It's not like this was in a rural area where he has a lot of land to himself. Now he has neighbors left and right to him. There's an elementary school up the street so he's very out in the open with this. And I think that's one of the things that caught the attention of the neighbors is such a nuisance and a eyesore for the community that they started to reach out to local politicians and to the news and to the media. And a lot of them, all of the ones that I have come across, uh, for well, not all, but most of them, you know, aren't vegan. Well, none of them are vegans and we have the same position on this situation that this is just bad for the neighborhood all the way around. They understand how this is impacting the soil in the community, the property value in the the community to have this big eyesore. It's a big stain on the community and they want it gone just as much as anybody because it negatively impacts them.
1: It really reminds me of some of the the movement against and you'll have to tell me because I'm not familiar with this neighborhood, but so many factory farms and and slaughterhouses and other animal abuse industries are located in in communities of color, places where people don't you know haven't had the political clout to keep them out. And this kind of reminds me of that. Where did you feel that these people were being taken advantage of? That their neighborhood was being ruined for this for this uh, outfit
2: absolutely and one of the reasons i that crossed my mind or that was startling to me is because initially this person did not have a license from the state but he actually contacted the state to get a license and i don't feel that if this was in a in a higher uh, income community that he would have been assisted at, as easily i think a part of me just feels like okay this is a lower income community We'll just kind of help him go along and we'll give him this special license. So he has a license from the state, but not a permit from the county. So that's what the big legal back and forth is about. So, yeah, I think there's, well, there's a new documentary called The Smell of Money that kind of talks about this issue, how communities of color are being specifically targeted by animal agriculture and setting up factory farming in uh, black and brown communities because these communities typically don't have the resources to stand up to them. So they're suffering from, like I said, property value decreasing and also environmental racism. These factory farms are polluting the neighborhoods. They're laying all kind of toxins in the soil and in the air and in the, the wastewater. So yeah, I, I, there's definitely another layer to this conversation, aside from the fact that that it is about animal abuse also.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think it's a very powerful issue. And, and I think you're absolutely right that, that not only are these people, you know, they don't have the same political power often as people in wealthier communities. But as you were saying, their property values are being reduced. So even when, I've seen this in legal cases, even when they're compensated, their property isn't worth that much. So they don't have to be compensated very much. Mm. Even though their property may be their home and everything to them, on the market, it's cheaper for these factory farms to disadvantage people whose property, you know, doesn't bring in that much money. So there's so many reasons for them to be doing this. I, I think your protest is really a microcosm of, of what's going on in so many other areas. Now, I know you had people join you, Was but was the whole community kind of in favor of getting... Who were they selling to? And, and was the community have mixed reactions or did everybody just want them out of there?
2: Yeah. So it's been a a, a very mixed reaction. The thing that I've noticed is that the people directly on the street have a lot of, they are the ones that are being directly impacted. So they feel the pain and the nuisance of the situation. The further you move out, I think the more people try to, I don't even want to say try, but they're a, a little bit more detached. So they may not look at it as a dire situation. They may look at it as a, oh, this is a situation where you're trying to take a business from a, a Black man, a, a business owner. So they don't see it in the same light. But for the people that we've been collaborating with, they are very close to the issue and they are on our side. But yeah, there has been some pushback on the news and people just learning about the situation. Some, I would say it's it's mostly positive because we do have the county on our side. The county is literally told this business, you cannot operate. This is illegal to do so. So there is an immediate sense of, oh my God, what is going on? How is this even happening when we speak to a lot of people? But there are some people, you know, that don't share the same sentiment. But for the most part, we have the community on our side, we have the county on our side. So we know that this is going to come to a resolution that's in our favor. It's just a matter of when.
1: Well, that sounds like a really powerful initial campaign, and I expect many more from APEX. But before we get to the third one, can you just explain the name? Because I was surprised by it.
2: Yes. So the name APEX uh, is an acronym. It stands for Animal Protection, Equality, Intersectionality. And I don't remember if we discussed that last time, but ultimately, Like I said, the reason for me forming this organization was because as I was doing activism, I didn't see a lot of the diversity that I would have liked to see within the mainstream movement. And I did feel like there was some reasons for that. I think a lot of people that are of color and that are black and brown, when they come into this space of advocacy, they acknowledge and see the ways and the imprints of white supremacy on the animal rights movement. And they don't feel as comfortable navigating through this. They don't have the they just don't want to deal with it. So they will prefer to either not be involved with the movement, it just put their attention elsewhere. And it's not like the movement in terms of the mainstream movement has had the best reputation of making advocates of color feel invited. So that's one of the reasons I've wanted to create this space, because I do feel there are a variety of oppressions that impact not only the animals, but those of us that are fighting for the animals. And we can't ignore those systems of oppression that impact both of us. So while we are an animal rights organization, we definitely operate from the lens of, okay, we have to understand how these systems of oppression impact all of us and work from there.
1: Yeah, I think that's very powerful. And I think that might have something to do with the third leg of your uh, advocacy. Uh, Am I right? Do you want to talk about that now?
2: Yes, absolutely. So this is the newest initiative that we have. And it was actually, I would say, gifted to us from the Encompass organization. And for those of you all listening, Encompass has been a organization and a nonprofit that's been involved in bringing about a, a racial equity within the animal rights movement. And recently they decided to dissolve the organization and they were looking for a space to have one of their campaigns, the Global Majority Caucus, relocate. And they contacted us about adopting the Global Majority Caucus, and now the Global Majority Caucus is at APEX, and essentially this is a space where advocates of color can come, talk, share community, network, and just learn from each other, vent to each other, connect with each other. And we have uh, a lot of plans for the future of the caucus, but that's our third campaign, and it really ties into what we're doing with trying to bring more advocates of color within the animal rights space. So now that we have this collection of advocates, we're going to think about how we can create more space for them and help them become more involved in the movement. So it was a real organic thing to have with our organization.
1: Yeah, and I'm so glad you were there to pick up that work because I, I think people were very upset to hear that Encompass was no longer and and yet you were there to pick up this very important work. It sounds to me, but I might be wrong, that this is still somewhat in the planning stage. Exactly the the details of how you're whether you're going to be doing trainings or workshops or how you're going to be facilitating this this communication and working together. Am I right or or are there specific plans in the works already?
2: We're still doing everything that the. Uh, in terms of the on the monthly basis, the uh, monthly community check-ins, we're still doing that at the beginning of the month. We're still doing the book clubs at the beginning of every month. So those things aren't changing. What we're really deciding on are the bigger initiatives, the initiatives like Pitch Day and the executive training. We want to decide what we can keep, what we can alter, what we can improve and what's possible with this transitioning uh, happening. Because obviously uh, we're an upstart organization, so we don't have the resources that an organization like Encompass that have been around for around five years has. So we're just getting our footing. So some of of the things that we want to do, we just don't have the capacity to do on the same scale of what Encompass was able to do. So we're still trying to navigate And see, okay, what can we keep at a consistent level of what was already happening? And what may we have to scale back on or wait to develop further in the future? So it's still a lot of internal discussions about how we're going to navigate that. But I believe it's coming together pretty well. I know
1: it all happened quite recently, but I, I just really wanted to hear what the plans are. And I actually want to take a step back and ask you, can you tell me what pitch day is? or will be?
2: Yes, yeah, so Pitch Day is and was a opportunity for advocates of color to uh, present their ideas around uh, new initiatives in animal advocacy and present them to donors and funders. And there would be, I believe, I wasn't at the original Pitch Day, but I believe there was about eight funders involved and it was like a, a Zoom setup. So the advocates would come in They would talk about the ideas to the funders and it would just put them directly in front of the, the the donors so they could hear directly from the advocate's mouth what they were trying to do, what was important to them, and really just give them that opportunity that they may not have had before. So that's what pitch day was and that's what it is right now. And what we're trying to decide is we're trying to continue those relationships with the donors to, you know, bring advocates back again, to expand it, to make it more, bring more funders in. We're still working through all of that. But essentially, that's what Pitch Day was.
1: Well, that sounds like a really exciting project. I I love that. And, you know, obviously, you are focusing on campaigns through this initiative, but also just through the Apex campaigns, like the one we just talked about with the local slaughterhouse that have this intersectional impact it's not just impacting animals it's also impacting people i assume that you intend to you probably already have come into contact with working with other social people from other social justice movements maybe some of them are not particularly interested in animal rights maybe some of them are very sympathetic i'm just wondering what those experiences have have been for like i know you know some people have bad experiences with that people from the environmental movement who just really
2: don't want to work with animal rights people. Have, have you had any experiences like that? Not really. I will say one of the things about the nonprofit is that, well, one, we're fairly new. So we haven't had the chance to collaborate much with people, but we are also cautious about how we collaborate with people. I don't want to rush the organization into something where our name is attached to another organization and it just may not be best for the organization long-term. But for the most part, we haven't had any of those types of experiences, but those can be a challenge to to navigate though. So
1: They sure can. <laughs> Nobody who, who advocates for animals is lacking experience in how difficult that, how important it is and how difficult it can be.
2: Absolutely. I, I will add to that one of the things that I am excited about is that During this No Backyard Slaughter campaign, one of the things that is important to me with APEX is that we work with community members. We work with people that's actually in the community. And what that means is a lot of the people that we collaborate with and do actions with and activism with won't necessarily be vegan. And we've had people at the protest that weren't vegan. And I've been making it a point at the protest to not make it about veganism. Although we share the same stance at these protests, although this is a abolitionist action and abolitionist initiative with this No Backyard Slaughter campaign, we're not highlighting that it is about the animals at these events. We're making sure that the community feels invited and we can fight for the same thing without having to talk about all of the details around this issue with people that may not be vegan. So that's one of the things that I'm excited about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like whether you have formulated it or not, you really are thinking in these directions of how, because, because it's an opportunity to, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people who get involved in these, this slaughterhouse campaign, or at least some of them, it's not the animals that are motivating them. It's the filth and the, uh, just it's a horrible place and it probably smells and it's full of disease you know there are many other reasons for neighbors to be opposed to this whether they and and this way by bringing in the animals it gives you an opportunity to introduce people to thinking about the animals without just saying no you have to be totally on board with that it so it sounds like you're already thinking about about how to work with others in other movements even if you're not articulating it in that exactly in that way and it does seem so important because i'm sure just you're legitimizing also caring about the animals.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, you know, we haven't necessarily made it a point to specifically reach out to other social justice movements as of yet and collaborate with them. But this is, that that is a part of the thinking of how we want to collaborate with people that aren't vegan or on animal rights. We definitely want to extend the actions and the ideas that we do to not just operate within the animal rights bubble. I think it's very important that we reach out to the global majority of the world, and that is people of color. So we're going to have to interact. If we want to normalize being opposed to speciesism, uh, then we're going to have to reach people that don't have that viewpoint yet and still navigate how do we remain true to ourselves and remain true to what we believe in, but still collaborate with others who may not share that same sentiment yet.
1: Exactly. It's it's the great challenge that everybody who advocates for animals faces and, you know, that's, that's where the work is. And I'm really glad you brought up the international aspect because that was actually going to be my next question, that considering animal advocacy obviously is an international movement, Um, do you see leadership coming from countries other than the U.S., particularly countries of the global South?
2: Yeah, I've been coming across tons of people that are doing things in other parts of the world. I met this person online recently that is essentially, is, is very funny because she is doing something similar in Africa that I'm doing with the Black Vegan Everything campaign. She's getting a collection of Black-owned vegan businesses in Africa and helping to support them. I think she said she has a database of about 300 Black-owned vegan businesses in Africa, and she's trying to help get them funding and resources. And I'm going to send you the information so maybe you can add it in the liner notes or anything like that. Please do.
1: Speaking of African leadership, I don't know whether you caught it, but if you haven't, You have to hear my interview with Dash Mazler, who is a Ugandan animal activist. Um, It was just a month or two ago. It was such a great interview.
2: (laughs) I know Dash, but I didn't hear it.
1: Oh, then you have to listen to it. I absolutely do. (laughs) It was such a great interview. I just loved it. Yeah, I I totally agree with you that there's so much uh, leadership coming from other parts of the world. I think it's very exciting. You know, of course, sometimes... Doing a podcast, we have language barriers, but not always. And I love interviewing people from other parts of the world. It's it just it's so inspiring.
2: Absolutely.
1: So yeah, I'll be looking for more of that. And I, you know, I think that there could be many connect. Do, Do you plan to have some interactions with people from other areas of the globe?
2: Absolutely. Actually, one of the people that's on our team at Apex is based in India right now, so we are open to people from all over the world, because like you said, obviously this is an international movement. It is something, uh, you know, speciesism happens around the world. It's just not delegated to one part of the world, but there that means there are also people fighting against it all around the world. And I was recently at the LEAD conference in March, uh, a few months ago, where I had the opportunity to meet so many people that are doing things in different parts of the world. Even last year at the Animal Liberation Conference, I ran into people from all over the world. So yeah, I am open to either collaborating or uh, spreading light or having people from different parts of the world work directly with APEX, indirectly with APEX, because the like I said earlier, the global majority are people of color. So that's what we're trying to reach that's who we want to be involved in animal advocacy because we're going to need these different perspectives to speak to these communities to have an impact in these communities there's certain things that just doesn't translate apex advocacy may not translate the same way in asia so it would be best if i can communicate with someone in asia or in india and ask them, how can I be of use to you? How can I collaborate with you in a way that's organic instead of, you know, just thinking I can share my ideas in another part of the world. I would like to collaborate with people.
1: I love that idea. And it reminds me of something I used to say, not to like, I'm talking about my interview and something I used to say, but still I'm going to mention it. I just feel, I've always felt like in some ways, animal advocates are kind of like a nation unto ourselves, That is actually all over the world. And we may be very different and there may be problems or whatever, but we all have this thing very much in common and we're all passionate about it. And I love the feeling that I'm linked to people all over the world because how much I care about animals. And no matter where you are, there are people who care about animals always. But bringing us back to the United States, I just wanted to talk to you about black veganism for a moment because it's such a hugely important force. Not that there isn't black veganism in other places, but I'm familiar with it in in the U.S. And it's just one of kind of the most important piece of the vegan movement right now. It's the fastest growing, the most powerful, the most enthusiastic, really. So I'm just curious to know, what would you identify as some of the most important trends within black veganism?
2: I would say a lot of the times the ethics of veganism isn't as associated with uh, Black people as I would like it to be. So I think one of the things is essentially the reason uh, we developed the Black Vegan Everything website was to showcase that the true essence and the ethics of veganism is widespread throughout Black communities. And, And I will say, I think Most people tend to highly associate it with food around Black veganism. And that is a very integral part of it because our culture, our lineage does have a lot of plant-based nutrition and foods that are heavily plant-based. So that's something that definitely is seen and shared often. But yeah, I think veganism is displayed in a variety of ways throughout black communities. And food is one, clothing and culture is another way. It's just so many things. The the body products that we use are often natural and free of any animal products and toxins and chemicals. So it's displayed in a variety of ways within black culture.
1: Usually for White vegans, it starts with caring about animals. And you have to, like, kind of drag people into the idea that, no, you can actually not eat them. (laughs) Like, it's actually possible. You can live well. But it starts with this kind of intellectual process of, oh, actually, I care about animals. And, you know, that's how it started for me. And this is great. I'm not criticizing it at all. But what you're saying about black veganism, and now it's striking me that it feels true, it starts in the other direction. Like, the culture almost encourages. As you said, more natural, more lighter, like better foods. There's this whole cultural movement towards that, that then can open up people to understanding the animal argument. That's part of your
2: mission. Am I saying that right? I believe so. Yeah, I think both exist. So obviously there are people that are just more focused on eating a a plant-based diet and they may not necessarily feel comfortable with the word vegan or feel they are want to be associated with it. And the ethics of it may not resonate with them, but you also have, like we were just talking about, people that adopt it as a lifestyle and are making sure that they aren't supporting any form of animal abuse through the clothes they wear or the, the food they eat or the accessories they wear. Both of those exist. So yeah, it's, it's just just like any other thing. It's a variety.
1: Looking back on it, I realize I was grossly generalizing, but it did strike me as sort of trends. And you know, I've always thought like the first, like it's very hard to talk anybody into caring about animals until they, as I always say, get the meat out of their ears. Like you can't talk to them about animals because. And it, but when people, it's, veganism, I think rather than thinking of people who go vegan without thinking of the animals as stopping there i think it might be the first step it's you know getting them off your plate is the first step to actually hearing what's happening
2: absolutely and i, I will even though uh, i am grossly generalizing no i agree with that mainly because unfortunately that is the largest way the animals are exploited in our system, current system is through food is through dietary consumption so i think most of us even when we are born as Children, you know, that's one of the first forms of discrimination that's pretty much normalized. We're given cow's milk as infants, and it, you know, it, it continues from there. So, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I think that's true for, you know, most people in general that, you know, if you can get people to connect and understand that, then you can create that bridge to fighting for more of a uh, through a collective uh, liberation lens. So.
1: Why is it so hard Christopher? Why is it so hard? Like like so many people do care about animals. It's not like most people don't care. Most people except for you know the real psychopaths kind of care about animals. Wouldn't hurt them at least to some extent. Why is it so
2: hard to get people to make change? Oh, that that is cultural conditioning that is white supremacy. I think a lot of the issues that are in the, a lot of the systems in place. You're not undoing just actions. You're in, undoing conditioning. I mean, think about how long it took us to evolve into the individuals that we are. It's hard to break those habits quickly. You know, we we go to therapy for trying to unlearn behavior that's damaging to us and to become better versions of ourselves. And the same thing reigns uh, true with how we exploit animals. It. It's a process for some people. Some people can go to, I don't know, training and, I mean, go to therapy and maybe one or two sessions, they're a much better version of themselves. Some people, it may take years, you know, and I think the same thing plays out with the way we exploit and contribute to animal abuse.
1: That is a great analogy. I love that answer and it reminds us all to to not give up too, uh, just because people don't listen to you instantly doesn't mean they're not in a process of change. Absolutely. So before I let you go, I just want to talk a little bit about the times that we're living in, which are a little fraught. (laughs) I think we all know whether we're talking about the politics, the climate institutions, police, like you name it. We are living in interesting times. Um, So, Is there any positive to be seen in I mean, these aren't positive things, obviously. But do you think that there's a possibility of the kind of huge social change it's going to require to achieve what we want to achieve for animals?
2: I am optimistic every day. I am more and more optimistic every day. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm happy and just bubbling and full of joy and uh, shooting to the moon every day. It just means that I do believe, on average, everyday life gets better. We absolutely suffer setbacks. We absolutely go through times and years where things don't go our way and society feels like it's being pushed back. But I do believe if you were to trade places with a person from 50 years ago, you would see how much better... Our current lives are on average around the globe for us, for animals, for all beings. Now, obviously, you know, like I said, there are things that are more and more prevalent every day. But I also feel like a lot of these things weren't as discussed as, you know, maybe 50 years ago. Maybe the climate wasn't as discussed uh, 50 years ago in terms of uh, helping to eradicate bad policy and bad everyday actions towards climate change. So I am optimistic. I I have a lot of hope for this generation to fight because I don't know how long I'll be here, but I do know I am optimistic about how aware this current generation is to make change for themselves and beyond. And I'll say also the earth is... One of the things that I I guess this gives me optimism, but I guess depending on how you look at it, it could be bad too. The earth will be fine. The earth will go on. The earth isn't dying. What's dying is the ability for humans and species to live on earth as freely as we have. You know, the earth goes through mass extinctions, and after those mass extinctions, a new form of existence or the life that survived goes on. So ultimately I believe that humans are still very small in their evolutionary process. We're still like toddlers in my opinion. We still haven't evolved to where we are going to be. And I think we're getting every day and every year we're getting closer. I just hope that we evolve before we make this earth unhabitable for us. So. That's the million dollar question. I don't know when that'll happen or if that'll happen, but um, I am optimistic though.
1: Well, I that is a perfect place to leave this interview. I don't often get a, a statement of, of of optimism that strong and I'm really inspired by it. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. Um, best And really, really best of luck with Apex. It's a uh, very exciting
2: development. Thank you for having me again. I am always excited to be a part of the our henhouse house family, so thank you again.
0: Greetings listeners, just a reminder that if you are a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org donate.
1: Also, if you are a flock member, please join us for our flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general.
0: So, if you're a member of the flock, check out that flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at our And if you write to info at our henhouse.org, you can also set up a one on one conversation with me, too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also.
1: And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxiety surprising. Some TikTokers revolted by Gordon Ramsay video appearing to pick a lamb to slaughter. All right, this is kind of a weird one. This is by one Callan Rosenblatt for NBC. And it's talking about, you know, Gordon Ramsay. I'm sure you know who he is. He's a quote unquote celebrity chef. And I mean, obviously, he is actually a celebrity chef. He is famous for reasons I don't understand. Of course, I've never paid much attention to him. And apparently he's now very big on TikTok in, a, in, in addition to his other uh, ventures. And on Thursday, according to this, uh, that was uh, actually a couple of weeks ago, Ramsey posted a video of himself climbing into a pen of roughly 10 pristine white lamb. I'm just going to take a moment out to say how weird it is, I think, that, that this author uses lamb as the plural of lamb. I've never heard anybody do that. I think it's an affectation to make them seem less real. And in case you're worrying it's a typo, it's not. Because she goes on to say in the video, Ramsey rubbed his hands together while repeatedly saying, yummy, I'm going to eat you, the chef said to the group of lamb. So, you know, Gordon Ramsey's an asshole. What else is new? You know, there was all this outrage on on TikTok uh, on, in the comments. And, you know, you do wonder kind of uh, kind of what people are thinking. Are all those people vegan? Do all those people not eat lambs? He also asked which one's going in the oven first, and he selected a sheep. Well, no, he selected a lamb. <laughs> so weirdly written. Pointing and saying, you. Then he jumped into the pen, startling some of the, quote, sheep. And he later clarified that no, this is the weirdest part. No animals were cooked in the making of this video. So... I guess he wanted to make people feel better because people get upset if they see a a lamb who's going to be slaughtered. I guess some of the people were vegan, but I bet most of them weren't. They were upset and, you know, all sorts of nasty comments saying it's heartless and out of touch and it's animal abuse. uh, Maybe these people are vegan. I don't know. People are weird. We've established that, haven't we? Beyond any doubt. I don't know what to make of all of that, except that Gordon Ramsay is an asshole and people are weird. Food security. It's our problem to help solve. This is from the Meet Your Markets column by Mac Graves on Meeting Place. And he's worried about food security. He's worried about climate change. Uh, and and climate change is what he thinks is causing or is a current cause of food insecurity. And he wants the industry, that's his industry, the meat industry, to do something about it. Cattle raising, he says, is often viewed as a global warming culprit. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, indeed it is. With its use of two gallons of water for every 100 pounds of the animal's body weight every day of its life. That is certainly one of the reasons. He goes on to say that we don't really know whether that's the number, but he doesn't say it's, it's any different. He does. He does go on to say, suffice it to say it's a lot. And it bends the arc of credible animal agriculture sustainability. Yeah, you're right, Mac. And if it isn't sustainable, he asks, does that mean animal agriculturalists like us will go out of business? I just want to note that for that term. I've never heard that term before. Is that what they're calling themselves now? Well, he can't call himself a farmer because he is actually a writer or something else. Um, But he, he doesn't actually raise the animals. But he calls himself an animal agriculturalist. Okay, I guess that's the new term. But no, he thinks it doesn't because we simply cannot replace animal protein with a vegan diet. Not to mention substituting a plant-based protein diet in quantities sufficient to satiate the world's inhabitants. Wait, hold hold the phone here, Mac. Yes, we can. (laughs) All we have to do is do it. It's really easy, and it will solve loads of problems. Uh, We already know how to do it. It's just a matter of you know spending the money, isn't it? So often the case, Uh, but. He just thinks by saying we can't do that, that means we can't do it. It's just like, you know, that's how people are, really. It's like they can't think their way out of a box. He says that that doesn't mean that we have to give up. You know, good for Mac, I guess. <laughs> we in the meat and poultry industry cannot let ourselves be forced out of business by something we can change and correct. All right, how are we going to change the fact that <laughs> animal agriculture is a huge contributor to climate change? even though he hadn't mentioned methane before it was he was talking about water, now he is talking about methane. What about things like a seaweed derivative? <laughs> like we haven't heard that nonsense before. A seaweed derivative that when consumed by ruminant animals dampens their belching of methane. I shouldn't laugh at the seaweed story because it's becoming more and more prominent. But according to everybody I trust, it's nonsensical. I mean, not that it can't work, but it just could never work at that kind of volume. But he seems to think that It's a possibility, but even he admits, while ruminant consumption of seaweed may not solve global warming, yeah, it really may not. For us, it can be a significant game changer. Don't cast it aside as so much hyperbole. It is real, and we need to research it and other forms of atmosphere-improving actions. There is so much more we can do, isn't there? And then he goes on to not list one single thing that they can do, except for marshalling their resources and finding more remedies. And he says, I don't know what they are, but scientists do or will if we encourage them to do so. I love the way people just think that everything can be fixed. You know, that's really a lot of what's wrong with the world and what's going to be even more wrong with the world as we proceed down the down the climate change. Um, hello. All right. Talking of hell holes, This last story is very disturbing. If you want to stop listening now, I totally understand. And I'm not even sure it's a rising anxiety story. It's just more a rising horror of the meat industry. Thousands of cattle buried, dumped at Kansas landfill. This is from Reuters, and they apparently found this out. It was certainly not being publicized by the um, cattle feeding industry. But according to this article, they sent 1,000 pound carcasses to a Kansas landfill where they were flattened by loader machines and mixed with trash after a June heat wave killed thousands of cows. Other cattle were buried in unlined graves. They say they sent them to a landfill. I don't don't really understand from this whether it's a publicly financed landfill and whether the taxpayers are paying for this or whether they own, they they actually don't own a landfill because this is not something that they do regularly, at least I don't think it is. The problem was the heat. So many cows died in the heat and humidity. So they, if they died, if they actually died, they couldn't be sent to slaughter. They had to be sent to rendering plants, you know, to make pet food and fertilizer and whatever re- other rendering plants do with uh, dead cows. They were overwhelmed. Uh, there were just too many uh, dead cows. And so the state government and cattle feeders decided to take emergency measures, which does make it sound like, you know, Kansas Kansas citizens are paying for this. The article points out that Kansas is forecast to see more high temperatures, That's not uh, worrying these people, because apparently at the Seward County landfill in liberal Kansas, they're taking care of the problem and they're now considering alternatives to decrease the risk of foul smells and other problems if more deaths occur. Like the deaths themselves don't seem to be considered, you know, they're just cost of doing business, I guess. And, you know, certainly the cows don't matter. Foul smells apparently matter. And there's a disgusting, disgusting um, description of what happens. Apparently they suspended requirements that carcasses be covered by six inches of dirt or trash. That's the usual rule, and they weren't even doing that. And according to one worker, after you run them over, they'll go flat, but they're going to sponge back up. You get a mass of them, and you get on it, and it's like running a piece of equipment on top of a waterbed. It moves. All right, I told you this was going to be horrible. Sorry. Um, So, Kansas officials, again, the officials state money paying for this, are exploring whether more cattle could be composted at feedlots instead. Composted? Really? You're going to take 1,000-pound animals and compost them? Is that really what composting means? According to this, Five Rivers, which is one of these um, feedlot companies, will feed cattle less grain, a high-energy ingredient, and more hay and silage when temperatures rise to minimize their internal heat, McDonald said. Well, yeah, that's that's going to fix everything. It's going to be 110 degrees out. But, you know, as long as they, they don't eat high energy food, I'm sure they'll be fine. The company, he goes on to say, is not considering other steps like adding shade, he said, because the mass deaths were rare. Like in the same article where they're saying, you know, temperatures are expected to go right up there again. They may have been rare in the past, but they're not rare anymore. And so, yeah, I, I... Just a horrible story. We're talking about a lot of cows. I can't find the number right now, but we're talking about a lot. Oh, man. It's a it's a dark world. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our henhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bieschler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in.